Welcome to episode 58 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, we're not alone tonight. We are not alone. We are not alone. Jesse, who do we have with us? We've got the amazing Nate Pickowitz joining us tonight. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? <laughs> great. Great. We're doing great. We haven't figured out this timing with three people yet. We, I mean, we're on like episode 58. Oh, my goodness. We still can't get the timing I, I right. I was but. just so excited that Nate is with us again because we had a blast <laughs> last time, and I'm excited for this episode. Good yes, deal. it should be good. So we want to jump straight into affirmations and denials because we don't want to waste any time because we've got a jam-packed Let's do show it. tonight. So Jesse, what are you affirming tonight? So this week I'm affirming with whole smoked pigs. Have you guys done this? No. Like I'm not, not sure necessarily smoked to. one yourself, but like had pork that's been like smoked whole hog style. Oh, no, I haven't. That does sound delicious. Oh my gosh. You, you've definitely got to try this out. It was, yeah, it's amazing. That, that's all I got to say. Anybody who's, who's had it before knows exactly what I'm talking about, but it's probably not that you get a lot of exposure to, but my wife was at an event where they had this. She, she brought some home. It's incredible. That sounds Excellent. awesome. Excellent. So yeah, how about go, you? Go find somebody that's smoking a pig. <laughs> how about you, Nate? What are you affirming tonight? I'm going to, I'm going to try to get back to, uh, to the basics here, but I'm going to affirm it's a brand new volume this year out for the Reformation called Reformation Theology, a Systematic Summary, edited by Matthew Barrett. And uh, it's very good. It's, uh, well, just like it sounds, it's a systematic summary of Reformation Theology done by a host of authors, people like uh, Douglas Kelly, Michael Horton, uh, and the lot. So it's very good. I'm affirming that this book is fantastic. That's awesome. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, if anybody wants to pick that up. And I tonight am affirming Zondervan, uh, the publishers, and uh, they have a great five solo series that we are giving away. Uh, so go to reformbrotherhood.com backslash contest to enter that. Um, also, uh, you know, we've talked about the Piper Clark Jones conflict going on, and they have a new volume in the New Dogmatic Studies series coming out by Michael Allen on sanctification that I just got a pre-release copy of today. I'm super excited to dig into that. Um, so hopefully you'll see some reviews of that. But hopefully Michael Allen just answers the question and solves the problem forever. <laughs> I doubt that's going to happen. But <laughs> it's, it's, Man, you, a man you guys can just totally like theology juked me on this. It's all like, right. You know what goes great with all those books? Smorked, smoked pork. Hey, you got to eat, right? You can't eat while well, you could eat books, but there's they're not very nutritious. Yeah. In in a way you are, I guess. So, Tony, <laughs> kick us off with some denials. What do you got this week? So, I'm denying this might be a little controversial. We we don't shy away from controversy, but this one might be over the top. I'm denying New England weather. Oh, so come I know on. Oh, man. every region has <laughs> their on. complaints about their weather. But in this last um fall, right, going from summer into fall, we went from like a stretch where it was 90 degrees through most of September. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had like a cold snap with frost warnings and then it goes back up to 70. And I just took the dog out before we were recording and it's like 40 degrees out. And my body just doesn't know what to do right now. It's like I can't figure out whether to sweat or to shiver. And so I just end up doing both. And it's the worst experience. <laughs> 
I love I with know, all I feel the, like that's all the you know uh, the apocalyptic weather going on around the world right now. You know, we're we're complaining about a couple of degrees <laughs> in swing up here. We we really do have it pretty good though. You have to admit that. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose I can't <laughs> complain too much. And then the the foliage. I mean, we talked about it last time, but it's been a good year this year for the leaves. Yeah, no, it's been nice. Uh, what's funny to me is two things. One is, isn't that basically the expectation of New Hampshire fall? It's like 80 degrees and then it's winter. That is like New Hampshire fall, I think. I guess. My, my experience. I don't know. And then um, just like with the Sox of the Patriots, I feel like every year people say, man, the leaves are so good this year. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> like what, what we say. Like when you're making small talk with people, it's just like, man, the leaves are good this year, huh? Like that, that's just what you do. They are. They are good this year though. <laughs> you can't avoid it. I mean, you live in like yeah. a place that looks like it came out of like a Monet painting and it, you just can't avoid talking about it. Yeah, no, it's yeah, good. I guess I should have affirmed that. So yeah. here's what I'm denying this week because I came across this in a, place of business and it just annoyed me for some reason uh this might also be controversial i'm denying check writing like just straight up why are people still writing checks and why are we writing them in stores like especially you get to like a place in like some kind of bulk food place somebody whips out a checkbook like in a way that they, they didn't even realize they were gonna have to pay for the items in their cart oh my gosh why why are we writing checks still so i'm just denying checks straight up that's a good way to go how about you nate <laughs> Uh, I'm going to deny Pope Francis this week, and um, <laughs> boom! Yeah, I just saw a tweet from either Pope Francis or one of his sycophants. I don't know who, but uh, this is the tweet: "The Lord does not leave us orphans," which is true. But here's his response: "We have a mother, the same one as Jesus. Mary takes care Ooh. of us and always defends us. Thus, Ugh. he is assigning the role of advocate, defender." Mediatrix, all those different titles that are otherwise for Christ, and he assigns them once again to Mary. So, and this this is nothing new. I mean, this is you know I'm not saying anything that anyone hasn't heard in the last thousand years. But I think what's frustrating about this, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure today, is that um, that uh, evangelicals, if you want to say, or even you know Protestants, um, somehow think that he is uh, bending even just a smidge on doctrine. Oh, he's coming to our side. No, he's not. He's really not. So once yeah. again, just on the good tradition of the reformers and the Puritans, I am never going to miss a chance to deny the Pope. Yes. That, I mean, that's like, we should just rename this podcast. The, we deny against the papacy. <laughs> that's right. But I bet the Pope writes a lot of checks. <laughs> he probably does. I bet you he does. He, nothing. he writes them he straight out of nothing. the treasury of merit. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they He's all got a bounce. treasury of merit debit card. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, it was like Tony just dropped like a rap lyric right there. <laughs> we should do an all-rap episode. We'll each take 16 yep. bars, and we'll just keep on trading off until we run out of words. That you would know? be I, I approximately like 16 r- bars that we run out of words, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like your rap game is probably pretty strong, Nate. I don't think I want to go up against that. Well, here's the problem with my rap game. I have to sit there and think about it for a while. Like when I, whenever I've tweeted and like played those games online, it takes me like 20 minutes to like put it all together and make sure it lines up. And so when you read the tweet, it's not bad, but on my feet, oh man, it's, that's something else. <laughs> so yeah, yeah well, don't. Well, speaking of that, before we get into talking a little bit about, about your book, how can people follow you online through Twitter? Cause your, your tweet game is strong and I want to recommend everybody to go out and follow you cause you have really good stuff. So how can they do that? What's your handle? 
at Nate Pickowitz. Pretty simple. It's I don't have like it's not like you know Nate four five seven two dash five five. It's nothing like that. Just Nate Pickowitz. You can find me. Although your name is in Greek characters, isn't well, it? there's a couple. That, yeah, there, I played around <laughs> with the, uh, and it's really bad. Like if you're reading it for the. I had someone actually correct me on my Greek content. They're like, well, that's not how that letter would be used. I'm like, okay, you do realize this is simply for aesthetic purposes. <laughs> like, you know. Actually, that would be an epsilon, not yeah, a That's right. That's right. They were trying to correct the grammar in my, you know, in the name of, you know, whatever. But, yeah. No, it's... Your re- reverse transliteration. <laughs> right. It's absolutely horrendous, but that's all right. So we, um, as we talked a little bit about this show, so if you're a podcast listener, which obviously if you're hearing my voice, you probably are a podcast listener of some sort. But if you listen to more than one uh, Reformed or Lutheran podcast, in Newsflash, there's more than one of us out there, um, you have probably heard 50 or 60 episodes on the five souls of the Reformation this month. And the reason for that is that we are coming up on the uh, 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle door of Wittenberg. Um, and if you're like me at all, and I've heard from a lot of people, you just skip some of these episodes because there is so many of them and they're covering all the same ground. So we didn't feel like we wanted to just do the same thing everyone else is doing, but we also felt like we wouldn't really be able to cover um, or like we wouldn't really be doing due diligence to the Reformation if we didn't cover the solas. So we asked Nate to come on tonight. Nate just released a book. It's called Why We're Protestants. And Nate uh, basically in the book goes through the history um, of the Reformation and the five solas and kind of what the impact is of that. So we wanted to bring Nate on because he came fresh off this book and he uh, understands it and has been working for months now presenting it and understanding it and explaining it to people in various contexts. So Nate, why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of what led up to writing the book um, and maybe like why this book now? Yeah. So at the beginning of the year or actually coming at the end of last year, I wrote Reviving New England that came out in October of last year. So 2016. And on the heels of that, you know, as soon as you finish a book, you want to jump right into the next thing. Like you get excited, momentum's building, you're having fun. I mean, it's it's fun to write. Like it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun and it's a big joy. Um, so I was I was chewing on what to do, and I had a few ideas. And I was talking to my wife one night, and I said, "Wouldn't it be great if I could just do something for the Reformation? I don't know what I would do. I don't know how to do it. I just, you know, boy, this only comes around. You know, I mean." I don't even want to say once in a lifetime, but this is once every 500 years, really. Um, and so I really wanted to be part of that conversation as much as possible. And then it, through chewing on that, I realized that, you know, I'm, we're a relatively new church. We're a church plant that's five years old. And um, I knew that we came out of, the people in my church came out of a lot of different traditions. Some of them came out of Roman Catholicism. Some of them were you know, Baptists. Some were Presbyterian. Some uh, didn't know Christ before. So just a a whole smattering of people. And I was thinking to myself, I don't think that most of the people in my church know, A, much about the Reformation, and B, much about the five solas and why they're important. And, you know, instead of writing a book on Calvinism or writing an autobiography about Luther, really trying to, as much as possible, to to take the best elements, and that was the, the goal, was to take the best stuff I could find, the best stories, the best anecdotes, the best writing, 
and sort of distill it down and condense it down to a short book that could be uh, easily accessible for just the person in the pew. Uh, so I didn't write this um, for necessarily people who have uh, been exposed to uh, Reformation theology or even history uh, as much as I did for people who are maybe are pretty new to the game. Um, so knowing that, I knew I was going to do this. I went ahead, I preached six sermons at my church. Uh, one was an overview, and then I went through each sola, uh, which is actually really difficult because when you get into the study, um, and I use the Zondervan books that you're talking about, and they're fantastic, but you, you wade into this thing and you realize that there's so much to this. It, it just goes far beyond just a simple you know Latin phrase and a couple words. Like It's so deep. And so uh, I, was, I, I found a way to teach through it knowing I was going to use those messages as the baseline for the book, and then I released the book in August. And uh, and so far, uh, the response has been positive, mostly from people who haven't uh, haven't been exposed to this before. Um, and so that's really who I'm writing for, uh, mostly people who don't have a strong handle on this material. Um, I, I wrote it to be, you know, very simple to, to read, um, easy on the, on the eyes, and just to try to be something that was going to be uh, helpful to the church. So... That was my big idea, and uh, who knows if that's worked or not, but that's what I'm doing. So, One of the things I really appreciate about your writing, Nate, is you're writing from this unique perspective where you're pastoral about this, that you're actually you're ministering to a congregation, to a people that you're shepherding. So I love where this book has kind of led in that direction. And I wanted to ask, you know, the title is unique because you're right, you're, you're talking about there's so much, so much ink being spilled, especially right now, about the Reformation, mm-hmm. but the title of the book has a kind of a unique bent, a unique kind of access point. And I'm wondering, where do you think is the most pastoral point for the five solas? I mean, where in your church, where are you seeing that this is coming out of the clouds in terms of just sheer theology into kind of shoe leather that we put on and we actually practice the things that the Reformation was all about? Yeah, so one of the biggest response I've gotten, well, you guys were New Englanders, so you know that the Roman Catholic presence is very strong up here. And so I have a lot of people that are in my church right now that are, that are either coming out of Catholicism or have come out of Roman Catholicism, and they remember it when they were kids. And for, for them, I remember specifically as I was preaching, I was there was a few folks I was specifically looking at kind of uh, you know, as I'm going, and I'm kind of watching their expressions. And for some of them, this was the first time they'd ever heard any of this stuff. So not just explaining what the solos are, uh, but in the book I also um, I refute, at least on a, on a basic level, a lot of um, the, the refutations that were that were made by the reformers against the uh, the Roman Catholic theology. So you know, for example, the issue on I'll just pick one. You know, uh, sola gratia, the fact that we're saved by God's grace alone. You know, th- that gets into the issue of depravity and the sin nature, and so. You know, if you if someone doesn't understand that they're not born innocent, it's not a clean slate, well, that affects everything in their worldview completely, you know? And so this really became a launch point, not just for refuting, you know, certain tenets of Roman Catholicism, but also uh, to really kind of drive the nails back in, no pun intended, um, for uh, recovery of the gospel, to be able to teach the gospel through this. And so I really try to keep a gospel focus. The main question of the whole book is how does a person get right with God? That really is what it comes down to. So, uh, again, try to just do this as pastorally as I can. That's that's what I am. I mean, I'm not I'm not a scholar. Um, I'm I'm not super credentialed in that regard. But I do have folks that uh, that look to me for help, and I just want to try to teach them and love them as much as I can. So, 
Um, the big thing was really an apologetic for, for Roman Catholics that are coming out of the system and to really uh, drive the nail back down for what is the gospel and and uh, and also to wipe away the, the 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 idea that Protestantism and Roman Catholicism are interchangeable. Um, you know, there's some people that live up here that do I go to the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church? Well, whichever one's closer. You know, and there's there's a sense in which we don't even know there's a difference. Uh, so to really kind of state that again and say no, there is a difference, and you know, we can we can love them and care for them and want to see them saved, but in the end, this is a different gospel, and we need to know why this is a different gospel. Um, and so that that became very important um, to me was just making sure that they understood the distinctives of again not the Reformation but what is biblical Christianity that became the point so um, I tried to go at it from that perspective as well yeah so I think um, one thing that I I'm often see missed in uh, explanations of the Protestant Reformation is sometimes we have this picture of like there's the apostles and then maybe there's like a generation after the apostles that kind of gets it. And then there's like darkness for like 1500 years. And what I found um, helpful in your book, you know, like in the, the Sola Gratia chapter, you start with Augustine, right? That's, that's not where a lot of people start because they think that Martin Luther just kind of came on the scene out of nowhere. Right. Um, So could you maybe talk a little bit about, um, the idea of recovering the gospel versus discovering the gospel. Cause I think right. that's, a, that's the way most people think about Luther is he discovered the gospel. And in right. a sense, I guess maybe he, for himself, he kind of did, but sure. it was part of a broader movement. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's a couple, a couple threads to this, you know, there there's in, in writing this book, I'm kind of going to segue just for a second here, but in writing this book, as soon as you say why we, why we are Protestant, you have lots of people who reject the title and say, well, that's not me, and they trace their lineage through some other way. Um, and, and that's fine. Like, I, I, If they have their reasons for doing so, that's all right. The point is not to be a polemic about a specific strand of Protestantism. The point is to differentiate from the Roman Catholic system. So that's really the main point. So, um, But we do see you know, traces of the gospel, uh, you know, even through the, the Waldensian movement in the 1100s and 1200s. Um, you have those people that were fighting for the, the scriptures and fighting for, um, you know, the, the gospel uh, in, in, in a slightly different way that we would see it even today. But, but you know, the, the, the main thrust of their fight was the same. Uh, and then you have people like, you know, um, like Wycliffe, who's looking to try to translate the Bible into a language that can be understood because when people read the Bible, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ and therefore by also reading the word of Christ. Um, and he's killed for it. And same thing with Huss. I mean, Huss was fighting for the same thing. So even when you go back to, you know, even 400 years prior to Luther, you still had pre-reformers that were doing this same kind of work. And you guys probably already know this, but for your listener, when Luther was on, uh, was in one of the debates, I believe it was with uh, Johann Eck, uh, Eck was uh, accusing him of being a Hussite. You know, you're just like John Huss, and Huss was, was deemed a heretic. And Luther kind of scratched his head and said, well, give me a night. And he went back to the library that night and dug through all the work you could find on Huss, read about Huss, read his theology, came back and said, well, uh, that's what I believe. I guess I'm a Hussite. I guess we're all Hussites. Um, And so he, even Luther, recognized that Huss had a contribution even in his thinking. But to your point, you know, Luther, you know, he was was a distressed monk. I mean, he was trying to figure out, you know, how how do I stop 
God from being angry at me so much because of my sin? And what do I do about it? How how do I stop myself from becoming uh, another victim of Christ's sword cutting off my head? Like, how do I deal with this judgment? And he was driven to the text at the time, which is a, a book called uh, a, four, a Book of Four Sentences by Peter Lombard. And in Lombard's book, he started to read Augustine. And when he read Augustine, Augustine drove him to Paul. And so it was actually by reading the Roman Catholic books that they were giving to him. And we could say that, you know, Lombard, I don't even know what his theology really was, but he's reading the stuff that he's supposed to be reading. They're, they're giving him materials to read, but he's reading deeper. He, he's saying, well, let's trace this back to the source. And he, he gets back to Paul. And so any Christian over the last 2,000 years um, has been a Christian because they have learned the gospel from the scriptures. Um, right. Flat. I mean, that the gospel hasn't changed. Um, but Luther Luther just came at the right time where he was able to, to put these elements together. Uh, he, he was in a, in a position where they didn't kill him. Uh, they could have. They, he had the ban on him, so I mean, at any point he could have. They could have taken his life. But God positioned him uniquely so that he could actually um, do this work and and like you said, recover um, this teaching. And um, you know, it's it's never fully lost. God always has his remnant. But in terms of you know the church at large, um, you know, he was realizing that that something had been lost, and uh, and he wanted to try to help to just recover what he felt in his conscience was correct, and that was you know the doctrine according to. Paul and according to Christ. Hope that's helpful. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no that that's like a, a great answer actually, and and that got me thinking. Like, I'm wondering, so how do we take that all the that historicity and translate it in such a way that we move away from the devotional? Because it seems to me like when I speak to people, we have this penchant for devotional stuff, really good devotional stuff, mm. but it's really difficult for us generally to apply what is like the practical truth that God has given us to to be hard and fast. And a lot of those guys were, like you were saying, they took the Bible seriously oh, yeah. at its face value. Yeah. So I'm curious, like having waded through all that material, having preached a lot of that stuff, uh, what's your kind of diagnosis of the church? Because you're right on the front lines there. And I guess the question is kind of this. We hear a lot about, well, we need to continue to reform. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, are there places where we haven't even yet begun to reform? Um, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> That's a, it's a good observation. I mean, in in truth, I think that the the concept of semper reformanda always re, be reforming. Um, I don't think that that is something that it's um, a matter of of extending to a certain sphere and then covering territory. Because if you even look at the course of even uh, church history and biblical history, you you don't really ever make any grounds and then kind of keep that ground. You're always having to go cyclical. Mm-hmm. You're always having to re recover you know, things that have been lost. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, God keeps on telling Israel, remember what I did for you? Remember this? Remember this? And it's like within a generation, it's gone. So, you know, we have to be in this process of remembering what we know to be true. And um, I'm not offering anything in this book that's going to be earth shattering. This is not going to, this is not the, not the uh, you know, the front lines of Reformation theology. There's so many better books on this topic. But my job, just as a pastor, is to bring this material to, to the Lord's people. Um, and I, I apply the scriptures quite a bit. I, I have generous scriptural quotations in there as well because I want them to see the scripture first. Um, but to be reminding people, okay, this has always been the gospel, this always will be the gospel, um, you know, getting even into Sola Scriptura. You know, is the is the Bible sufficient for you? 
Is there another authority in your life that you hold to be higher? Are your, in, in our case, a lot of times, I think, in, in the evangelical movement, we're held captive to our feelings. My feelings, right. you know, it's, it's sola experientia. You know, it's what I exactly. experience and what I feel, and that's what we're caught on now. So to be able to say, okay, no, sola scriptura for us means that the scripture is the ultimate authority. Again, not that these other things aren't valuable because, you know, creeds and councils, those are certainly valuable and how you feel about something matters. But in the end, when push comes to shove, where is your authority lie? Well, it's going to be, have to be in the word of God. So all of these points do have practical application and we have to keep on mining that. If we just learn Reformation theology, just to say that we're reformed because that's really popular right now, there's going to come another day in a few years where it's going to not be popular anymore. Uh, I hope not, but I mean, that's that's generally how we go. But in the end, this should never go away. Um, this is what the gospel is. This is what the Bible says about things. So uh, we need to always not just be reforming, but always be applying uh, what we learn from Scripture and what we learn from other believers, other pastors and teachers. They're helping us to remember what we already know to be true. So um, this has immense uh, pastoral and uh, and personal application, I believe. Yeah, that's great. So wh- why don't we talk through the five solas a little bit and what kind of what what do they mean? What kind of what was the stakes in the Reformation? Right, and then also what um, what's the practical application for us now? Because I think that's as I have before. I started skipping the solas episodes because I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's what I what seemed to be missing was. People right. would go through the history and the theology, which is really important. I mean, I'm a church history and theology guy, so that's right. obviously really important. But if we don't apply that to our lives and we don't take the fact that these principles, which are scriptural principles, and make it so they actually do something in our life and mm-hmm. they draw us closer to God, then then what, why are we bothering? Right. So, so maybe right. focus um, and give us some practical applications for each of the five solas and kind of maybe when you're done with that, how do they all sort of come together? Because I think sometimes we also think of them as like five discrete points. Right. But as I've studied them, they really are much more uh, much more of a cohesive whole than we, we maybe give them credit for. Right. Right. right, right, right. And Nate, would you mind starting with the one that you felt like through this project, like the Lord really laid on your heart? I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear you start with oh, the one man. that was the most impactful for you. Yeah, that's, I, I got to tell you, sola gratia was, was difficult. Um, because, you know, you, anybody from any Christian tradition, a Protestant tradition will say that they affirm sola scriptura, you know, we'll say as Protestants, we, we affirm sola fide, of course we affirm sola, solas Christus, all that. But as soon as you get to sola gratia, um, I don't think people know just how deep that goes, um, to the point where Luther in bondage of the will says, this is the issue. This is the thing on which all turns. He said, if this is not by God's grace alone, then, then we have nothing. And, and Erasmus, when he, he was in, the, in his book, he, it's an argument against Erasmus's, uh, Erasmus's work. And he's basically arguing against semi-Pelagianism. Um, and Pelagianism was condemned, you know, a thousand years before that. And so we're, he's arguing against kind of a, a new hybrid. And even now, we, we deal with sort of, you know, free grace, Arminian sort of distilled, watered down Arminianism. It's not really even true. Arminianism and even more. We have TP Calvinists, you know, it's really what they are. But when when push comes <laughs> to shove, um, you know, are, is there anything that is inherently good in you? Do we actually choose God first or is he the one who regenerates and saves? And as soon as you tell someone 
sola gratia, this is by God's grace alone, they, they nod, and then they think about what that means, and then it, it, uh, it really shocks them, and they're like, wait a second, if I affirm this, mm-hmm. so this is what, you know, I've said this in another place, that you know, Luther was a Calvinist before Calvin was even a Christian, that Luther understood <laughs> that this, this doctrine was true, that this, the issue of total depravity, that there's nothing re- inherently redeemable in a person of themselves. I have nothing to bring to God. That smacks in the face of American evangelicalism. We don't want to hear that. Um, and Luther was a lot more harsh about those terms than even we are today. Um, so that that's an eye-opener. And when I, when I preached Sola Gratia, by the end of the sermon, I was in tears. Um, not as much um, possibly because I was impassioned, but really more that I was just weeping um, the, the fact that we are arrogant enough to think that we're the ones that are doing this. Um, when in truth, what we're doing is we're stealing uh, glory that is supposed to be ascribed to the Lord, you know, that he's the one who's doing it, and our hearts should be one of repentance and faith, but even just joy and thanksgiving and humility and awe that God would even choose to save a single person. And just the just the audacity of, of us, and I'll raise my hand and say sinful believers that, you know, that think that we, that this is all about us. And uh, and it's not so. So sola gratia was was uh, that was that was kind of a turning point when I was like, wow, this is getting real, <laughs> you know. Like, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I I had some folks I know in the church who, um, you know, might not agree with me on some theological points, and I'm thinking they're going to leave, <laughs> they're going to go away, <laughs> and they didn't. You know, I I didn't lose anybody out of the church from that, but it, it was definitely a cause for you know, chewing on it and thinking about it, and we had good discussions, and it was it was a good period of time in our church. It was it was helpful. I think people really grew. I know I certainly did. It was helpful for me. So, Sola Gratia was a tough one. But you're, you're totally right about that, because it seems, even in my life sometimes, we take Soli Gratia and we make it Soli Gratia light. Mm-hmm. You know, of course we believe that God is good and that he gives good gifts, but we draw this line at salvation. Right. And when you really wade into the implications of that, it's either all or nothing. It's either right. thrust or no thrust. Right. I mean, that's yeah. how Luther put it out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I alluded to this in the book too, but, you know, we're, we're more than willing to grant everything else to God in terms of sovereignty. You know, Lord, will you save this person? Uh, Lord, will you get right. this? Will you do this for me? You know, like you just said, you know, we're willing to concede grace on every other single point. But it's like when it comes to the salvific issue, well, no, I, I, I did that, or I had a part in that. And um, yeah. it, it's, you know, again, you know, it's it's hard because you don't want to start waving the, the flag that says, okay, this doctrine is heresy. But I'll tell you, when you read the scriptures, when you really look at it, um, I mean, Luther at one point said, look, if 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 the will is dead, then then you can't choose. If the soul is dead, the will is dead. Uh, you know, there's no other way to look at Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins like that. Well, how else do you see that? Uh, you know, even the picture in Ezekiel of God actually going out and, you know, removing sovereign acts, removing our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. H- how do we choose to do that? How how, how do we mm-hmm. entreat him to say, take out my, my dead heart and put in a new one? It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And um, again, I believe it robs God glory of from god and i think it's wrong and i think the, the bible affirms that it's wrong so yeah yeah i mean we're saying the same thing over and over again here but it's uh it is an important one and it's it's really like luther said it's the hinge on everything on which everything turns so 
Yeah, so why don't we, um, so we've talked a little bit about Sola Scriptura, we've talked about Sola Gratia, so tell us a little bit about um, Sola Fide and kind of what what role that played in the Reformation and then how, how do we really, how do we put some leather on that one? How do we really make that one have feet in our current world? Yeah, so Sola Scriptura was called or known today as the formal principle of Reformation. If we don't if we don't have that to work from, then we don't really have anything. You have to have a baseline. So really the Reformation was a battle over the Bible initially. But the second, really, the tier of it that had to really get fought over was the issue of the gospel. And that really is tied around sola fide, uh, that we're saved. And, and this is something that has been talked about quite a bit. It's not that Roman Catholic theology denies faith, because they'll say, we believe that you have to have faith in God, that they're going to affirm the same thing. And so it's not that this is a denial of faith, but whether or not this is faith alone. Whether or not, the, and, and there's a lot of, not that I want to plunge us into this, but there's even talk even right now on the blogosphere, the Twitter sphere, about is this faith and then works keeps you in? Uh, or is are you saved, truly saved by faith alone? Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 seems to say that we're saved for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So, um, again, understanding the gospel, understanding this is a monergistic thing that God is doing, understanding that is it is simply by faith. Because I think when people hear about sola fide and they say, well, of course, I, I believe the gospel, I'm saved by faith. But when you look at the inverse of what what if you don't believe that? Because that's really where I think it comes to bear. Because then then you're saying, okay, I believe in I believe in Jesus, I, I trust in him, I believe the gospel, but then I'm going to bring in these other things as kind of my insurance policy. I think of Roman Catholic theology in terms of the, the faith and the, 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 the element of works as sort of a team strategy. I'm going to believe in Jesus, but I'm also going to get Mary working for me. She's going to go before the Father and before the Son, and she's going to do something right. for me. And then i got the treasury of Mary. i got all the deeds of all the saints. Okay, they're for me too. And so i got all these people, and then I'm going to do everything I can, and uh, hopefully my, my family's going to pray for me when I'm gone. And it, it becomes this manic, you know, do all you can do to get in good with God. And it that's completely antithetical to faith alone. Um, that right. we're not saved because we have a, a team of people that are fighting for us and slugging away for us. No, we're saved because Christ has saved us. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So I think when we see the inverse of, of the implications that we get caught up in trying to do other stuff to get in good with God, I think that's where we see this really have arms and legs because I think people struggle with that. Um, they don't rest in in the assurance of faith. Um, uh, they just don't. They don't do that, and we need to. When they do that, then the burdens come off, the guilt and the shame comes off, and then all of a sudden, when they actually are participating in the works of sanctification, it takes on a whole new light. I mean, you're doing it out of love and adoration, mm-hmm. and you know, and obedience and love, and it, it's it's a whole different thing, you know. So I I, th- I think that's where I see this kind of hit the road is is that way when people start to realize what their faith looks like and what it means and what it produces even emotionally. Um, is uh, is a huge thing, I think, for the church. So how can we come to a place where we can rest in that? I mean, do you see evangelicals struggle with this in perhaps a different way, but with kind of the same underlying root that Catholics do? Yeah, I think it is a big struggle because we have, we have two ditches. One ditch is we have this trendy antinomian, you know, grace, 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 um, that basically denies Romans 6.1. You know, it's... It's like we're going to go grace to the hilt here, 
Um, and then it, it makes way for all kinds of licentiousness. So, you know, the church rightly says, well, that's wrong. But then the other side of it, you know, where you start to pair, uh, pair deeds and somehow, you know, it's tricky because again, I'm not, I'm not scholarly enough to really, you know, manhandle some of the terms, but, um, you know, lordship salvation, I believe is correct. I believe that, you know, the fruit has got to bear out of faith. If there's no fruit, um, I mean, Jesus himself says in John 15, if you don't bear fruit, then it's evidence that you're dead. I'm going to cut you off and throw you into the fire. So it's pretty clear that he demands fruit. Um, but that's, again, I think it's a psychological thing where we get right now, I mean, for teenagers coming out of a lot of evangelical churches, they don't have gospel. They have moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, they have this sense of if I can just be good enough, I believe in Jesus. Okay, I got that. I, I obeyed my, you know, youth group teacher that way. I'm, I'm, I'm loving Jesus. But if I just do enough good things, then God can't turn me down. And, and I think, I think that uh, I think we get it backwards. I, we don't understand um, really what it means to be saved by faith alone. And um, so I, I think we're always in a wrestle with those tensions. And um, I think the only way to really get through that is to renew our minds and to just really keep on nailing these things down. You know, read the scripture. What does the Bible have to say about this? You keep on reading what is true about the gospel and nail that down so that when the enemy comes against you and says, well, you're not doing enough, and maybe you're not saved, you can say, well, no, this is what the Bible says. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So um, I think right we on. need to, I think we just need to, to, you know, biblical literacy is atrocious today. We need to get, that's going to be my next book, by the way. I'm going to tell, I'm dropping this on you guys right now. That's my next book, Lord Willing. Oh, man. Is a book on Bible study. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's. Reform Brotherhood exclusive yeah, right it's here. exclusive. I, I, you know, my wife and I have been talking about it, and my heart really seems to be going that direction. Uh, a book about studying the Bible, very simple, very pastoral, but just how to get into the Word of God, because I think that that is one of the things that we just we don't have the Word uh, in our hearts and our minds, and so therefore we just wander into whatever we feel, and it's uh, it's killing us, you know. So again, yeah, that Lord willing. That- <laughs> And, that, and that's one of the sort of lesser known aspects, I think, of the Reformation and of Luther, particularly his theology, is the reason that the scripture is so important um, is because it's a word that comes to us from outside of us. Mm-hmm. And right. so the the element of you're told this thing, right? You're given this message, this gospel that's preached to you. And the only thing you can do since you hear it is to trust mm-hmm. that what is said is true and that the person who is being presented to you as your savior can actually save you and wants to save you. Mm-hmm. And so Luther used that language of like, well, the gospel is that the gospel has to be the gospel for me. Right. So there's an appropriation element to it. Right. But I think that's so important because that's one of the ways, like I said, that the, the soul is kind of cling together. And even when we're explaining the solas, right, you talk about faith alone and you sort of just naturally say, well, faith in Christ alone. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Solus Christus and, um, you know, that seems like one of those no brainer ones that we're like, well, yeah, of course, but it, it, there's so much of a hangover from Roman Catholic thought. And then now it's, it's almost like our own, our own self-saving. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how do you see that fitting into the, the modern church? Yeah. I alluded to it previously and I think it applies here as well. You know, just this team approach to salvation, you know, again, no Roman Catholic is going to say, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. They all say they do. And I think that, I think that their gaze is right. I think that they, they want to believe in Christ and that's good. Um, But the, the issue it's, it's the alone part that comes to bear. 
Um, and and again, you know, I think even as evangelicals in this country, even right now, we get into you know praying to our guardian angels, and we get you know this little you know if I'm just going to do this over here, and even even praying certain prayers and you know, getting into certain kinds of meditation and, you know, it, it, we're exploring all these things outside of, of Christ and outside of the scripture. And, and we're, we're, it's like we, we, we just can't stop being idolaters. We keep on adding these little trinkets into our faith. And, um, and I, I'll even say this, that I think it's even a danger for, for us, even in the reformed, you know, circles to start looking at, you know, some of the reformers and starting to stick them up a little bit higher and I, sure. I believe in giving honor to whom honor is due, because that's what the Lord says to do. But in the end, you know, we're not, it's not, we're not saved by Calvin alone or Luther alone or any of these guys. It's, you know, our, our focus really needs to be to elevate Christ and to see him as preeminent. We're teaching, I'm teaching through Colossians in my church right now. And that's the theme. It's so important to see Christ as preeminent, high and exalted. So, um, I think that's where we struggle. We we have made Christ too common. We've brought him down to our level so we can see him in the eyes and we can sort of talk to him as as equal. Uh, we've made him buddy Christ and coach and pal and friend. And now if you're in Christ, you're a friend of God, but he doesn't start there. I mean, he is Lord. Um, and uh, I think that is where this comes to bear. You know, it's not that we're, you know, evangelicals are not praying to Mary. But we are we are devaluing Christ in a way that is not um, the right thing to do at all. And, and when we see Him uh, as exalted, and we place our faith in Him and Him alone, um, that's really when we start to see Him afresh, and that's really when we start to, uh, I think, to experience even more assurance and even awe and wonder. I mean, not many people really have awe uh, when they see Christ. Um, that's where I think the Puritans come in so handy because. You know, they, they saw Christ and they were just in awe. I mean, they couldn't stop writing about him. They were just so infatuated with Christ. Um, so I, I think really for us, um, again, not as much praying to saints, but we are dealing with, you know, competing, uh, competing saviors and competing uh, folks. And I, um, I just see a real need for us to be learning who he is, understanding who he is, worshiping him rightly. Um, I think that that's really where the Solus Christus comes in for us. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's, I'm curious if you, if you agree with me, Nate, I think that's a real problem, not just an oversight, not just missing the mark, but this idea that like Jesus is my homeboy, mm-hmm. you know, like somehow mm-hmm. you're slapping high fives and right. I, I get that there's this sensibility that want to make Jesus approachable, mm-hmm. which he's done his condescension, but can I drop a Downton Abbey like <laughs> metaphor up in here I, real quick? It'll be missed on <laughs> so, me, but go for it. Okay, so here, so here's how I feel. It's like you know, that's the show about the the downstairs uh, servant people and the upstairs like the the uh, aristocracy. And the thing is, in that show, they have a relationship, the servants with the aristocracy, but it's always on the terms of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Like the servants never forget that mm-hmm. the reason that they can be accessible or even approachable with the aristocracy is because the aristocracy has the sovereign power essentially to dissolve that relationship at any time. Right. It's by their grace in a sense. So it's. It's not a complete metaphor, but this idea again that we'll like go into heaven and we're going to be high fiving Jesus when you know in John's revelation he sees him and falls down as exactly. a dead man. Exactly. So I want to move in. I want to move in this direction where I love what you said. Can we be in awe of Christ? How do we get to that point? Right. Right. That, I'm so glad you went there because that's. I was thinking the same thing in Scripture. You know, you look at um, even when Peter, James, and John go to the Mountain of Transfiguration. 
They see Christ transfigured. They fall on their faces. They're terrified. They, they begin to worship the wrong thing. God yells at them. They freak out again. And then it's not until Christ, you know, touches them and says, you know, it's okay, stand up. You know, don't be afraid. Like he, it's always Christ who initiates and, and reassures, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I'm, you know, fear not, I'm with you, all those different things. But when, when people see Christ, whether it's the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament or in the New Testament when he, they see him on earth, or whether we see John's revelation like you made known, um, it's never Buddy Christ. We don't just sit down on the couch with Christ and have a Coke and just talk about, you know, our day. I mean, that's, that's what people are saying from pulpits, you know, and it's, it's right. insane. It's an, it's absolutely it insane. Is. And it's it's wrong, you know, and, and it's insulting to the Lord. I mean, yeah, you know, he, he came to us, he rescued us, he called us friend, he called us, you know, we were adopted as sons and daughters, we're, we're co-heirs with him, according to Romans chapter 8. Those things are all true. But we, we need to not forget our place. We are the created ones. We're not the we we're not taking uh taking a seat on the creator bench. That's not how this works. And um so yeah, I mean if we can you know, at second Corinthians four, I believe it's verse five, says, you know, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and we are servants for your sake. We need to get back to preaching Christ, seeing him as exalted, and um that's one that's I'm on a soapbox here, but that's one reason that I'm just I get fired about preaching and and preaching expositionally is because you know we need to stop seeing him and making him up and just you know even you know we do these messages that just you know oh, I was in my car and Jesus showed up but it's like you you guys are idiots this is wrong you know you need to see this, you need to revere the Lord you need to fear the Lord Amen and uh, Amen. and they don't and, but here's the thing there's this crazy thing that happens when you see Christ this way when you see him in Second Thessalonians one is raining down vengeance and fire on those who do not know God and who disobey the gospel. When you see him that way, and then he says to you, I've called you friends, now you're mm. in awe, you're, you're humbled, um, and then you become, then you, you weep, you know, these bitter tears, number one, at, at the state of your own soul, at your sinfulness, but then also, the, then you start to see his grace and his mercy, and then you start to worship. You know, you know who who are you that you would do something like this, Lord? So it, it puts us in that position where we get to see Him uh, as exalted, and we we need to be there. And uh, if if I told my church this past week, if all I ever do in ministry is is just give them Christ, I, I can die a happy man. Like that's really needs to be our end. Paul said, "I declared unto nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified." That was his mission. That's what needs to be our mission as well. So, anyway, I'm going to go on for hours about this, but I just, you know, talk about Christ. Preach that's, it, that's where I want to be. You know, that's that's the that's the marrow of the whole thing is is talking about Christ. So, it, it strikes me too that in your answer, this idea that maybe we see that graciousness after we see that demonstration of power, which is rightly His. So, in the example of the transfiguration. There is that tender moment mm-hmm. where, where Jesus says, mm-hmm. look up, it's it's okay. Right. But it comes after, after. not before. Right. We want to put the cart before the horse, I think, on that. And the reformers remind us, yeah. you got that twisted, yeah. and you need to get that right, because if you get it wrong, again, it's not just like, we made a little error, it's an oversight. This radically redefines your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time yeah. we see a, a miracle, I'm sorry, Tony, I know you're about to say something, but every time we see a miracle, there's always that shock and awe element and uh, we, we, we would do well not to ever lose that. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that, I mean, that's that's right on, is that we, 
we have to come to the Lord on his ter- on his terms. Yes. And and he graciously provides us what we need to be able to do that. But the second that we um we think about Jesus in a way that loses sight of the fact that he's Lord. He's Lord and friend. Mm-hmm. But if we ever lose sight of Lord mm-hmm. in, in favor of friend, mm-hmm. then we've lost both. That's right. Uh, right. Because we're no longer in fellowship with Christ as he is. We're in fellowship with an idol of our own making. Yes. Of this sort of like happy clappy, you know, yippy skippy, everything's great. Right. Jesus, that just doesn't exist. Because the same Jesus who saved us is the same Jesus who's going to punish sinners for eternity. Yes. And if we lose sight of that, we've lost all the gravity of the gospel. Yeah, I believe and so, too. And the gospel is a grave matter for people who are perishing. That's right. Um, that I have some law and gospel people who are going to freak out at that, so I'll <laughs> clarify next week all of Jesse um, in our denials. But but it, we talked about it last week, right? We talked about the gospel in our last episode. And, and if we lose sight of the fact that the gospel is only good news because we were once perishing, then right. it's, it's just a... It's just sort of a vapid nothing if right. there's no bite to it, right? Right. So that kind of brings us to the last sola. And um, this is another one of those that I like first blush, people think like, well, who would ever disagree with this? Right. And that's God's glory alone. So so what what does that mean? What did I know the reformers didn't use this language, it came after to describe them, but mm-hmm. what what does this concept, how does it take shape in the Reformation? So this past week I, I had the opportunity to teach on the priesthood of all believers. And and really, that that's kind of sort of the um, the the entryway into some of this. There was an idea that there was this um, sacred secular divide. There was also a divide between clergy and laity. That some things are spiritual and some things are temporal, and something you know they have this divide. And um, and not only did that create a, a divide amongst persons, but also amongst activities. You could go on Sunday, do your holy thing. Then Monday morning you can go back to whatever you were doing, and that was just going to be whatever it was. And as long as you you know did your penance and whatever you're going to do, um, it sort of sanctioned all of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reformers really addressed this and said, "Wait a second. I mean, Zwingli was actually very strong in this, um, probably to a, to a, <laughs> to a fault. Um, but but they were they were working with this idea that all of life belongs to God. There is no sacred secular divide there is no difference between clergy and laity a christian is a christian as a christian and all of life needs to be lived to the glory of god uh calvin wrote extensively about coram deo living before god um he was keenly aware that every single thing he did from going to church to paying his taxes to going to the grocery store well you know grocery store but you know <laughs> for our our purposes <laughs> If Calvin had a grocery store, you know, if he went to Wegmans or whatever he was going to go to back then, you know, whatever the, the Genevan Wegmans was, um, all of life is lived to the glory of God. You know, Paul said, whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink, do all that you can do to the glory of God. So it, it's this, this idea that, we, that we're allowed to, to keep certain areas of our life separate. That's, that's something we think that we can do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do my churchy thing over here, but just don't touch my hobbies. You know, okay, my job is different than right. this. And, and, you know, people can justify left, right, up, down, because, well, that's, that's my church life. This is my professional life. And, and the Bible certainly tells us that everything, everything belongs to the Lord. So if you're, if you're working at a, at a burger joint, then you better be flipping burgers to the glory of God. Um, and this is a good thing, you know, uh, my kids are learning memory verses right now and, 
you know, one of them in Colossians 3 is, you know, whatever you do, you know, do all, uh, do your work for the Lord rather than for man. So even if you're doing that, do that for the glory of God. So so that really is sort of the the um, all-encompassing um, sola that, that really includes all of the Christian life. And, and yeah, and they weren't using, you know, it wasn't like they were charging through the streets of, you know, Wittenberg saying, Soli Deo Gloria, right. you know, they weren't doing that. Yeah. But but in their writings, it was very clear that, that everything... They were reforming education. They were reforming the idea of marriage, children, um, you know, vocation, government, everything. They wanted to, to turn everything. They were magisterial reformers, which is different than the radical reformers. You know, they weren't just, you know, it, it, it was through institutional means. They wanted to make sure that everything in their country, and that's where the Puritans came across. You know, we, we you know, balk at their ideas about making America this new Israel. But in truth, the, the core of that idea is that they wanted to make sure that everything that they did, even governmentally, was to the glory of God, that there was blessing in that. So, you know, say what you will about, you know, how that theology laid out, but the heart behind it was to honor God in all things. And so that really does have arms and legs for us, that when we live our lives, you know, your nine-to-five job, that belongs to God. You know, your family vacations, that belongs to God. Your money belongs to God. What you look at on the computer belongs to God. Everything that you do in your life uh, needs to be done to God's glory, and, um, and it needs to change our focus. We need to become all consumed with the glory of God. That's what Scripture mandates. That's what Jesus said. Uh, unless you, uh, you know, die to yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. So, again, these radical calls for all-inclusive living to the glory of God. So, um, that's that's really, I think, where it, where it comes to play for us, um, and that's where the reformers were talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's well, great. They, I'm pretty sure that you made this the definitive. Oh no, solace. Oh no, <laughs> podcast. You you've heard it here. You do not need to listen to another one for another 500 years. Oh, my this should carry you oh, all my the goodness. way through. You guys are too. That's too much. <laughs> well, here's a here's a sad thing. I've probably done about eight or nine of these five solas podcasts. So the ones that you're skipping over, you're probably skipping over the ones I've done. <laughs> 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 but I mean, it's such good stuff. I love I love this material, um, and uh, I I could have probably written more because there's so much more to do, and uh, I could have preached more. It was just it's wonderful. So, one thing I've been telling people too is if you get the book, and I would encourage you to do so. In the back of the book, there's a bibliography section. It's about four pages long, and it's just chocker block full of really good resources um, to get deeper into study uh, works of history, biography, theology. Uh, really good material. So I would encourage listeners, certainly, you know, if you want to support uh, this project, that's great. But if you do, go to the back and, and really dig into some of those. And um, those five solos books from Zondervan are listed back there. Those are great resources. So I, I hope that someone from your, your audience gets to get that series and really dive into it because they're, they're fantastic books. Yeah, they really are. So um, we're running out of time. So, Nate, before we go, why don't you tell us um, what the website of your church is? Because I'm sure some people are going to want to hear the sermons that you preached on this and then also the best place where they can get the, the new book. Yeah, so the website, we've we got to do something about the, the name of it, but it's simply harvestbiblegilmanton.org. But if you just Google Nate Pickowitz and look for a church, I'm sure you can probably stumble into it, but um, I can give you a link for the for the page and um in terms of buying the book i mean it's available just pretty much everywhere um it's on barnes and nobles and things like that but amazon's really the best way to get it um i have been offering um 
uh, like bulk rates. I've had churches and groups that have contacted me. So, you know, if you're a pastor and you want to um, get this for some people in your church, or if you want to, you know, do something in that, um, there's always a way to do that. You can just contact me for that. And, um, you know, I've seen it being used as a resource to help teach people who are just getting into this. And so uh, if it can be used for that, then that's that's wonderful. So, Great. And I'm going to make the bold recommendation that first people follow you on Twitter at Nate Pickowitz. And second, that the book is so approachable, so affordable. It's like 10 bucks, right? On yeah, I keep on dropping Amazon? the price down, uh, you know, because you want to, you know, you want to make the thing cheap so it moves. The Kindle version is $2.99. I mean, that's, and I'm, I'm going to keep oh, it. You can't beat that. I know. I'm going to keep it that way for a while because, you know, I, I want, I want people to get them. I, you know, I want people to have access to it. So yeah, it's $2.99 on Kindle. I think right now it's like nine eighty nine on Amazon. They have some funky algorithm they do. Um, so yeah, it's I try to make them really cheap. They're short. Uh, I'm just a a, a cheap man. <laughs> so <laughs> as my wife so, would well, say. <laughs> but, I, but I love that about you. So here's here's my bold recommendation: is that go out. Don't just get one for yourself. Get one for a friend, maybe somebody who's like reformation curious or somebody, I mean, you guys, we just heard Nate's passion about this. This isn't about just a history lesson. It's about getting us back to rediscovering the core principles of the gospel and how that changes us today mm. moving forward. So get one for yourself, get one for a friend and read together and, and talk through it because it's really wonderfully approachable. You're not going to feel like you're reading some something that's just filled with drudgery. It's really going to going to propel you in your faith, drive you back into the scriptures. So you're going to want to do that with somebody that you love. Nate, thanks so much for hanging out and sharing with us a little about what the Lord has taught you through this project about the five solas. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Yeah. It's been great because this is the definitive podcast now. So thank you for that. (laughs) Fantastic. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh